Shall we pray? Our Father, we would pray that you would bless the preaching and hearing of your word. Cause us to be very aware that your spirit is applying your word to our hearts today. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Would invite you to open God's word with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll be reading six different texts in the book of Ephesians in a few minutes. Michael Griffiths wrote a book about the church entitled Cinderella with Amnesia. And the cover of the paperback book was a picture of a woman dressed in rags. And she was holding and staring and looking at this glass slipper, really puzzled. Because she had forgotten what this thing was. She had forgotten that she had been to the ball. She had no idea. And he wrote that book a generation ago to remind the church then who had forgotten the amazing reality of who the church is. We must never be Cinderella with amnesia. Today I think it's even more so that we need to hear this. I'm more concerned for the church today. Looking at profession, profession, professing Christians in generalities, I don't see the biblical understanding of what the church is to be. In many places, I don't see the purity of the church, don't see the unity of the church. Very concerned for the church today. There's a large number of evangelicals, not liberals, evangelicals, who are not regularly worshiping or members of a church. The survey of this year, 2022, Ligonier's Ministry State of Theology survey found, quote, more than half... 56% agreed that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. And almost half, 46%, disagreed that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. End of quote. And how many post-COVID never have returned to the church? If anything, maybe they're listening to Zoom somewhere. I'm very concerned for the church today. 20 years ago, the church was tolerated in our culture as being, okay, it was tolerated as an institution because, well, we need the church for good citizens. They're hardworking people. It's part of civilization. The church brings food banks and they minister to the community. They start schools. They minister to orphanages. They care for unwed mothers. So the church was tolerated. But today, with the rise of neo-Marxism, there's a hostility to the church. And our culture now is not tolerant. It's rather trying to undermine and destroy the voice of the church from the culture completely. De Young writes, these days, both inside the church and out, organized religion is seen as oppressive, irrelevant, and a waste of time. Outsiders like Jesus, but not the church. Insiders have been told they can do just fine with God apart from the church. I'm very concerned for the church today, and so I wanted to bring a series of sermons on what the church is, a series of sermons on what the church is to be by asking first the question, what is Christ's church? Today we'll look at the answer to that question from God's perspective, what is Christ's church? And then, as there's opportunity, 
in the months ahead when I'm preaching in the morning, what is Christ's church from our perspective? What is Christ's church from God's perspective? And right away, we need to have two clarifications. One is just, let's define our terms. We must use a biblical concept of church, not our ideas, not our opinions, not your feelings of what the church is. Dan Kimball suggests, quote, what comes into our minds when we think of the word church is the most important thing shaping how we function as a church. End of quote. So, for example, how one worships comes from what you believe the church is. And that's the problem. The word church is not usually defined. It's used, but what one person means by the word church is not what another person means by the word church. One person might mean by church, it's just simply the building you go to on Sunday, going to church. Another person might mean it's just a group that you belong to, like a service organization. So the first clarification is we need to know in any discussion, what the other, how the other person's defining the word church. But most important, we need to know what the scripture defines the word church. What is God's definition of what the church is? And that's where we're going to start today on God's perspective, what he means by the church. And the other clarification is that when the Bible speaks of the church, it's the visible church, people not the church invisible, God's elect. When church is used in the scripture, it's almost always, 98% of the time, used referring to the visible church. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. It's a body of believers and their families who've been called and organized under elders to worship God and to serve him. Jesus seldom used the word church, but whenever he did, it was always to the church visible, administered by men on earth. He gives to his church the keys of the kingdom. He commissions his church to go into all the world, discipling the nations, Matthew 28:19. The Lord Jesus, when he comes and walks among the churches in Revelation, it's to the visible churches to observe her purity and her worship. It's the visible church that gathers weekly for the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, Acts 2. Paul's and his last word to the elders, Acts 20, 28, says, Care for the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Visible church. As the Westminster Confession puts it, chapter 25, the visible church which is also Catholic, that is universal unto the gospel, consists of all those throughout the world who profess true religion together with their children. It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and the family of God. It was Augustine who first coined the two terms, invisible church and visible church, to try to make distinctions about the church. But they're not two churches. It's only one church from two different perspectives, God's perspective and ours. Like you have one quarter, but you have a heads and a tails. There's only one church. Church invisible is used to speak as God views his church. He only knows, he knows the heart, and he's the only one who knows the heart of those who truly trust in Christ for salvation. And so what is the invisible church, larger catechism 64? The invisible church is the whole number of God's elect 
that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head. And so when we speak of the church invisible, it's not invisible to God, it's invisible to us. Because we don't see the end of the world from the other, we can't see through time, we can't see through all the places on the earth, we can't see one another's hearts, it's invisible to us. But the church as God sees the heart is referred to as the invisible church. So those chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved and who will be glorified, Ephesians 1.4. One of the very few places that church is used in this sense of the church invisible, Hebrews 12.12. The church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven is elect from the foundation of the world. But see, we can't see the church invisible. All we have to work with is the church visible. And so almost always, every place, the Bible referring to the church is referring to the church visible as we see her, people. It's an institution with members and officers and worship and sacraments. The Lutherans have two terms which are somewhat parallel and perhaps even better. The Lutherans refer to the church as internal, invisible, God's elect, versus external, visible, what you can see, the people. Same church, two perspectives. There's not one visible church and another invisible, but one church, invisible in the spiritual and visible in the material world. As God cares for both body and soul, so does Christ govern the external affairs of the church, just as certainly as with his grace he nourishes it internally. Kuiper. If someone says, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's not a member of of a Bible-believing church. I hadn't even thought to become a member of a Bible-believing church. See, that person's trying to live as a member of the invisible church, not the visible. And that's not taught in Scripture. For some people, they define the word church. They suppose the word church is just plural for Christian. All you need is two or three people together who love Jesus in the same place, and that's a church. No, it's not a church. To be part of the church means more than that we love Jesus and love other people. And so today you have books like Life After Church, Divine Nobodies, Dear Church, Quitting Church. And so you don't want to go to church anymore. These are people who are trying to live as part of the invisible church, but not part of the visible. It's not taught in scripture. Or as Karen Ward, an emergent church leader, claims 95% of the non-churched in her area have a favorable, favorable view of Jesus. So she writes, Jesus is not the problem. It's the church they dislike because they do not readily see the church living out his teachings. But the Jesus they like is not the Jesus who calls sinners to repentance, who claims to be the Son of God. It is the only way to the Father who died for our sins, who someday will come as judge of all. He's almost certainly a nice guy, open-minded, spiritually ambiguous, never offending, and a good example. End of quote. So the emergent movement emphasizes relationships and love to others, practical ministry, outreach, all good things but people who are trying to live as part of an invisible church, not the visible, and it's not taught in Scripture. John Stott writes, Some people construct a Christianity which consists entirely of a personal relationship to Jesus Christ and has virtually nothing to do with the church. They have given up on the ecclesiastical institution as hopeless. 
But we need to beware lest we despise the Church of God and are blind to his work in history. We may safely say that God has not abandoned his church. He's still building it and refining it. And if God has not abandoned it, how can we? So with those two clarifications that we must use when we speak of church, we must use the biblical concept of church, not our own ideas and feelings and opinions. And we will be using the word church as the visible church, unless it's clear from the text that we're speaking of the invisible text, invisible church. And so we want to look at six texts now from the book of Ephesians from answering the question, what is Christ's church? And the answer from God's perspective. This book in Ephesians, Paul is answering that question, perhaps more than any other book. What is the church? First, the church is the body of Christ. Christ is her head, Ephesians 1, 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God has placed all things under the feet, under the authority of Jesus Christ. He is now sovereignly ruling over all things, and all is pressed to the full extent. All creatures and the whole cosmos are already under the authority and the rule of Jesus Christ. This is a present reality. This is not waiting for a future event. He's already the head of the universe. And he's the head over all things. He's the supreme head. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior, Ephesians 5.23. Ephesians 5.29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the head over all things, especially head of his church. Every body needs a head to rule over it, to give it direction and purpose, to instruct it in the way it should go, to hold things together and to give life to its members. So why is Christ given as head of the church? He who is head over everything in the whole cosmos. You see what it's saying? Gave him as head over all things, and here's the answer, for the church. He is the supreme head, absolute dominion over all things for the sake of, for the benefit of his church. Jesus Christ's transcendent authority over every power and authority is focused supremely on his glorious purposes in and for the church. She alone is his body with a special role in God's design for the world. Nothing else possesses a higher role and significance for the purposes of God. Craig Troxell. Nothing more important in the history of the world than the church of Jesus Christ as the body of Christ. Another text, the church is not only the body of Christ, Ephesians 1, and 23, which we've read already, the church is the fullness of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This language was taken right into the Westminster Confession again, 25. The 
The Catholic, that is universal church, which is invisible, consists of all the elect who have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ its head. The church is his bride and the fullness of him who fills all and all. But how can the church be the fullness of Christ? No person of the Trinity is in need of anything. They are complete. We speak of the aseity of God. He's independent of and does not dependent upon anything. And how can the scriptures then say that the church is the fullness of Christ? It's in the passive. The church is what Christ fills. There's such a union between Christ and his people. We, have to, we derive our life from him. The church is the fullness of Christ, not because we fill him, he fills us. But the resurrected Jesus Christ in all glory is now filling the universe. He's filling his church. He's empowering his church. And so this text would tell us that Christ is incomplete without the church. He fills the church with his presence by his spirit. Now in this age, the church militant, as well as the church in glory church triumphant. John Calvin writes, God says that he does not consider himself full and perfect except by gathering us to himself and making us all one with himself. Strong language. The church is the fullness of Christ. Proper conclusion would be, since the church is the fullness of Christ, one cannot claim to be in Christ, who is also not a member of his church, since his church is the fullness of Christ. Third text, turn over to Ephesians 2.19. The church is the temple of God. This metaphor that God is building a church, which is also a temple Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus Christ, when he died upon the cross, fulfilled the law. He abolished the ceremonial law. That's the barrier that he tore down. So that believing Old Testament Jew is no longer apart from the believing Gentiles. Christ has merged. He's grafted in the New Testament believing Gentiles into that one, the same, continuing believing Israel from the Old Testament church. So there's a one household. You who were once without God, you were estranged. You've been brought in. You've been grafted into the household of faith. As John Piper put it, the picture here is that the true Israel becomes the church of Christ. And the church of Christ emerges as the true Israel. And what unites this new people is Jesus. They are the people of Jesus, not Jew and Greek, not slave and free, not male and female, not barbarian, Scythian free, but Christ is all in in, in all. Jesus Christ has merged believing Jew and Gentile into the same church, the same household. And this metaphor is, and God's building a house for them. Or you want to mix the metaphors, he's building a temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And up goes his church, because he promised, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, Matthew 16. So he's triumphant in heaven. He's died upon the cross, rose, 
again from the dead, ascended into glory, and at Pentecost cast down gifts to his church for his coronation. He gives gifts, Ephesians 4.11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Here it is for the building, building up of the body of Christ. Church officers through history have been God's gift. This is how Christ is going to have his church built through the ages. Historically, he gave the apostles and prophets. There's a foundation. And then the next generation through the church, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, and to each one, your living stones, Peter says, in this temple that's going up. Here's how Christ is building his body. Here's how Christ is building his temple. The church is the new temple that's going up through history. And as God adds a new member in, another stone, up go the walls. You see, we're not pietists. Pietists is just reflecting on just me and Jesus. And you don't say that irreverently. But the gospel for a pietist is, God has a wonderful plan for my life. Period. That's not the gospel. It's a wonderful part of the gospel. For all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, yes, there is full forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to God. And he does have a wonderful plan for your life and good works, Ephesians 2.10, that you should walk in them. But Ephesians 2.11 says, therefore, and it goes on and talks about those who God has brought to himself as individuals. He's brought them into a church. God's plan of history is not to save an aggregate of individuals. But he has a wonderful plan for his church. And the question is, are you part of his visible church? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is, yes, he saves individuals. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is, and he brings them into the one household. The church that's going up on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Unless you're in that place of safety that God has provided for the, from the wrath of God, that's personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be safe from the wrath to come. God reveals that the one place of safety is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also coming into the protection and the love and the order and the justice of his visible church. Come to Christ today. Come into his church today. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ. The church is the fullness of Christ. The church is the temple of God. Another fourth text, Ephesians 3, 11, 8 through 11, the church is the wisdom of God. Look there to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, speaking of angels. This was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Paul has reflected on salvation to individuals and salvation to the corporate church, he erupts with praise. All this displays the perfect wisdom, the astounding beauty of the wisdom of God. In the church. And it speaks of God's wisdom 
The church is the wisdom of God, his displayed wisdom to the angels, verse 10. It's been a mystery for centuries. The angels have been pondering, how is it that God is going to save the, the nations of the world? And then they see it at the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And at Pentecost, when the world harvest begins and the gospel's going to the nations of the world, and the nations, the angels, are looking on. There's no specific reference whether it's to good or, or bad. Angels, it's all of them. They're looking at the church. And they're saying, this is now. Now we understand the wisdom of God. The church exists so that angels would stand in awe of the wisdom of God. God displays his wisdom in history so that the worship of heaven would be white hot with admiration and wonder. Piper and Maclay writes, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. The church is God's displayed wisdom. The church is secondly God's marvelous wisdom, verse 10. It's difficult to bring into English marvelous, manifold. The New Revised says in its rich variety, like what Bruce wrote, God is working now in his church to display the infinite diversity, the sparkling beauty, the many splendored wisdom of God. God and his wisdom to form a visible church in history from the nations of the world to give to Jesus Christ as his inheritance for being Savior. And Paul never got over that. How could he, as a Jewish rabbi, the, who blasphemed, who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, be saved and to be brought in, to be commissioned, to go to the nations and call them to Jesus Christ? He knew that he was the least of the apostles. He knew what a great sinner he was. And he never got over the church as the manifold wisdom of God. There's nothing like it. Piper again, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. God's purpose for human history is to create a church for Jesus Christ, to redeem a people for all nations. And so all the rest of history, all the wars, all the governments, all the acts of Congress and parliaments, they're just scaffolding around this temple that's going up because the church of Christ is God's one central purpose in history. John Stott expressed it. Secular history concentrates its attention on kings, queens, and presidents, on politicians and generals. In fact, the VIPs. The Bible concentrates rather on a group it calls the saints, often little people, insignificant people, unimportant people, who are, however, at the same time God's people, and for that reason are both unknown to the world and yet well-known to God. Secular history 
concentrates on wars and battles and peace treaties, followed by more yet (laughs) wars and battles and peace treaties. The Bible concentrates rather on the war between good and evil, on the decisive victory won by Jesus Christ over the power of darkness, and on the peace treaty ratified by his blood, and on the sovereign proclamation of an amnesty for all rebels who will repent and believe. Again, secular history concentrates on the changing map of the world as one nation defeats another and annexes its territory and the rise and falls of empires. The Bible concentrates rather on a multinational community called the church, which has no territorial frontiers, which aim is nothing less than the whole world for Christ and whose empire will never come to an end. The church is the wisdom of God. fifth text, also in Ephesians 3, 21, the church is the glory of God. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Hard to fathom, isn't it? Because we see the warts, we see the sins, we see the failures of Christians and the failures of churches, the hymn writer speaks of the, by schisms rent asunder, heresies distressed. How can you speak of the glory of the church? It's the way God views it. Charles Hodge writes, it's because the universe is so vast, the heavens so glorious, the earth so beautiful and teeming that they reveal the boundless affluence of their maker, but even greater. It's through the church. God designs specially to manifest to the highest order of intelligence his infinite power and grace and wisdom. The church is the glory of God. Sixth text, turn over to Ephesians 5.25. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish he loved the church he gave himself up for her in the image of Christ as the husband the church is his bride, and they're inseparable as husband and wife. Five verbs there of Christ's commitment to his bride. He loved her. He laid down his life on the cross to die for her. He gave himself up for her, that substitution in our behalf, which our sins deserve, so that all who put their faith in Christ are forgiven and restored and reconciled. To sanctify her, having cleansed her, that he might present her to himself, John Stott brings out all those five verbs cover eternity. What is Christ's church? You need to see it first from God's perspective. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is her head. The church is the fullness of Christ. The church is the temple of God. The church is the wisdom of God. The church is the glory of God. The church is the bride of Christ. 
Do we know that? Do we believe that? Is that our perspective of the church? If it is, then we will honor the the church of Jesus Christ. We'll see the wonder, the beauty, the glory of Christ's church from God's perspective, while the high regard for the church of Christ, because there is the wisdom of God. Don't be Cinderella with amnesia. Do you love Christ's church? Do you have a a joy to be a member of her, to think that the likes of us have been brought to salvation and to be brought into his one historical church? John Stott's assessment of evangelism in the book of Acts, the Lord didn't add to the church without saving them and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership went together. They still do, end of quote. Do you seek the good of Christ's church? Do you work and pray for her that more and more God would add new believers into the body from the nations of the world, that the next generation of our children will grow up and make genuine professions of faith in Jesus Christ? Do you see the joy, the privilege it is to witness to people of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to be adding them into the church of Jesus Christ? Young men, do you Consider, do you pray whether God would have you to serve in Christ's church in the offices of elder and deacon and pastor and missionary? There's none higher calling. Do each of us have a perspective? What a privilege it is to love and to care for Christ's church using your gifts. That's one part of the body. One's the tongue, one's the hand, one's the feet. To see her grow and truth, to see her grow in knowledge, to see her grow in love, to see her grow in health, to see her grow in unity, to see her grow in peace, to see her grow in good order, to see her grow in justice. Pray for these things. Work for these things. The gospel is that God saves individuals who come to him in repentance and faith. Yes, it's true, it's wonderful good news. But there's a comma. That's only Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Because God's purpose is to create a church and to add believers into his church, that one holy Catholic and apostolic church founded upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, his visible church with shepherds. As the missiologist Stephen Neal says of the visible institutional church, quote, theologically, we have been discovering anew that the church is not an appendage to the gospel. It is itself part of the gospel. The gospel cannot be separated from that new people of God. Piper, again, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. Listen to Kevin DeYoung's appeal. Quote, if we truly love the church, we will bear with her failings, endure her struggles, Believe her to be the beloved bride of Christ and hope for her final glorification. 
I still believe the church is the hope of the world, not because she gets it all right, but because she is a body with Christ as her head. Don't give up on the church. The New Testament knows nothing of a churchless Christianity. The invisible church is for invisible Christians. The visible church is for you and me. Shall we pray? Father, we pray that we would more and more see the glory and the beauty of Christ's church from your perspective and from your heart. We see ourselves as, as individuals and know we have so far to go. We see our churches and realize they fall so far short of this glorious beauty. But yet Christ is perfecting his bride and one day she will be without spot or wrinkle. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Give us a greater love for your church, a greater perspective of praying for her and working for her, for Zion. And that as the waters cover the earth, may the knowledge of the Lord cover the sea, may the new Jerusalem cover the sea. As you gather the nations into her, all for the honor and the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.